0: The Guardian. Support for this Guardian podcast comes from Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes creating a professional website for your business, personal brand or portfolio so easy it's newsworthy. Go to squarespace.com and use the offer Guardian to get 10% off.
1: Hello and welcome to Media Talk. On this week's show, BBC3, BBC4 or BBC something else, we give Tony Hall all the advice he needs as he decides what to axe to save another 100 million quid. Plus, Susanna Reid swaps one breakfast sofa for another, but is she the answer to ITV's breakfast woes? And we speak to talk Sports Scott Taunton and ask him when, or if, his station will ever return to Twitter. This is Media Talk from The Guardian. And joining me this week are podcaster extraordinaire, Helen Zaltzman and Boyd Hilton, the TV editor of Heat magazine and also a sometime podcaster. Um, and not just here, Boyd. Yes, Footballistically Arsenal. Check it out. And you got top, top level guests, top name guests.
2: Yeah, we have uh, proper footballers. We have Ben Winston, the, um, the director. He directs stuff with Gary Barlow and things. Okay. And um, uh, Dermot O'Leary, who I go to football with.
1: And others <laughs> who <What's your laughs> I go to football I do. With? Yeah. He sits next to me. It's a very
3: celestial football yeah. podcast.
1: I saw them at Match of the Day and said, Who's there next to Demo O'Leary? Do you have guests on your uh, Answer Me This podcast? About uh, once Helen? a year.
3: Why are you angling to get on? No. Had, we had uh, John Ronson, we've had um, various news, we had Jackie Mason. Which was difficult because, you know, a man who's been doing entertainment for about 300 years, he kept poking the microphone into his chest so he couldn't really hear what he was saying. He just hear this kind of duffing sound and he clearly hated us. <laughs> <laughs> Apart from that, it was a triumph. Yeah. And uh, he has maroon eyebrows, which I'm sure are perfectly natural.
1: Wow, is that still available to listen? Yes, it is. Oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to check it out. Oh, it's right. hot. Well, first up, we start. Where else? With Jackie Mason? No... <laughs> Now with BBC Three, which is facing the axe, as BBC Director General Tony Hall looks to make another £100 million worth of savings. Well, all eyes have been on BBC Four, with the likes of Michael Gray and David Dimbleby saying it should be rolled into BBC Two. But it turns out it's BBC Three that should be worrying about its supper. It might not be the end, however, with plans for the BBC Three brand to live online and on the BBC's iPlayer. Something has to go, says the big man. But, Boydo, mm. can I call you that? Yeah. Should it be BBC Three?
2: No. No, I'm furious about the whole idea. For me, BBC Three is the one uh, channel that the BBC launched in that whole period when it were, kind of went digital all those years ago that actually has a proper service and, and function and serves an audience that isn't served elsewhere. You know, in terms of public service broadcasting, you've got E4 and ITV2 that vaguely are youthful, but, you know, there's literally no public service broadcasting on either of those channels. And BBC Three has created a huge amount of original comedy and drama. Off the top of my head, him and her, Little Britain, of course. Um, recently, Stacey. Gavin and Stacey, Bad Education that wouldn't have been commissioned if it hadn't been for BBC. There's no way it would have made it onto BBC One or BBC Two. And there's, there's hardly anything that... Be, I mean, I love BBC Four, don't get me wrong, I love watching it. But if you're going to cut one or the other, for me it does make sense to fold BBC Four into BBC Two. And this is what I would do. I would do that and I would say, literally the number of hours that BBC Four has of original programming around culture and the arts... Count it because it's actually not. I mean, I know it seems like the whole channel is that, but new programming about culture and the arts. Like I see the schedules every week, there's about a handful of hours.
3: They repeat a lot as well. They repeat don't a they?
2: lot. Fold that into BBC Two. Make sure BBC Two has to. Show that number of hours per year of culture and arts, and then you're fine. BBC Three, there's no way they can do that with their their original programming of of drama and comedy
1: and other stuff that appeals to a youthful audience. Okay, Helen, what would you do, three or four? Well, keep both.
3: uh, Yeah, I think I would keep both, because I'm not sure why he's so adamantly against salami slicing. No one likes their budgets being cut, but at least then it would be private behind-the-scenes complaints from BBC staff rather than people in the papers going, no, don't cut BBC Three. Well, will Nick Grimshaw have a TV show now? And also the expression salami slicing is uh, really objectionable and stupid. But um, (laughs) I think maybe the problem with BBC Three is that ideally, yes, it's this breeding ground for things that are so new, they can't really be on BBC One or Two. But I'm not sure they've necessarily quite cracked who the audience is. And a lot of the shows are are a bit fillery. I know because I've worked on some of them, not wishing to (laughs) bite the hand that feeds.
1: With Demet O'Leary?
3: No, not with Dermot oh, O'Leary.
1: Okay. Um, Boyd, well, you, you listed a few of the, of the BBC Three hits over yeah. the years, which uh, there have been lots, been that they, uh, they did that BAFTA-winning documentary, Our War, about Afghanistan, yeah, absolutely. which is fantastic yeah. stuff. Yeah. But, you know, you look at last night's schedule, Say it was slightly unfair picking one day of the week. I don't know, maybe not. You're you you going got to. A, I'm going to. Yeah. <laughs> so you've got a hairdressing competition with Steve Jones. Hair, yeah. yeah. Uh, you've got EastEnders Repeat, uh, and you've got a couple of Family Guys, which were the biggest rating shows yeah. last night. I yeah. mean... It hasn't got that much great stuff, and surely the what, what it does. Well, on do, any could, give, find a home on no, one or two. Well, on
2: any given week, I think it's more fair to look at a week's uh, schedule, if you like. And you know, recently they've had Uncle, which is the Nick Helm comedy, which was great, really good. Yeah, one of the best comedies of recent times. That would never have been commissioned BBC Two or BBC One. Um, I'm looking at that kind of stuff. Hair, I mean, you know, it's not it's not going to be the greatest show ever, but it is. I imagine I don't know how well it did. I imagine it did quite well. Opinion, you know, young people doing elaborate haircuts. You know, not for me. Shows like Sun Sex and Suspicious Parents, which often get those those kind of eye catching title shows that often get trotted out by the likes of Jeremy Paxman and stuff, you know, on Newsnight and made fun of. A load of those shows are actually really, really good formats that are very well done. And um, actually are very popular among its, the target audience. And they're much better than the equivalent shows you get on ITV2, for example, that does a similar kind of thing. So I still, I'm still maintaining, despite your look at the schedule last night, that BBC3 is doing pretty well in terms of – I mean, it could do better. I agree with you. There's lots of weird stuff. Like, it shows – these terms repeats. It shows a lot of random films every now and then. It will show, I don't know, The Invisibles or something. Big kind of Armageddon. Yeah. <laughs> the Invisibles, even. Armageddon, yeah. That kind of stuff. I think it's, it hasn't done a great job necessarily of selling itself. But I think if it kind of purifies its schedule, if you like, and gets rid of a lot of that stuff, then I think it should carry on. But the problem with BBC3's got as well in terms of this, because I, I totally agree with Helen about the salami slicing thing. You know, it's just a phrase that's trotted down. Oh. as a bad thing to do.
1: Guilty as charged, my lad. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But
2: the problem BBC3's got is it's got a £90 million budget. And if it is the case that Tony Hall said we've got to cut 100 million, it's kind of like, oh, that's so neat, isn't it? It's so tempting just, for someone. I like him, you know, some grandee of the arts or whatever he was doing before, to go, oh, yeah, let's just get rid of that for the kids. They won't. It'll be fine. They'll look it on the internet. But actually, the number of people that watch TV on TV as opposed to on the internet, is still the vast majority, including young people, still want to watch stuff on TV.
1: Well, Helen, yes, that brings me to what do you make of this idea that the BBC3 brand could live on and it will be a hole in the internet and it will be iPlayer only? Because isn't that where the, where the 16 to 24-year-olds get their um, small Screen kicks these days, or even smaller screen. Well, kicks.
3: as I'm nearly 34, I can't speak the 16 to 24 year <laughs> olds in your ambassadorial role. Accuracy. I do think it's interesting, though, time shifted viewing and people, uh, you know, having Tivo boxes and Sky Plus and stuff like that. And I wonder whether in 10 years' time, brand identities of the various different channels will be much more irrelevant. But at the moment, it does seem a little bit too early, particularly from the BBC compared to one of uh, the commercial entities with multiple channels. But I suppose they can see whether on iPlayer certain shows are working or not. They can get very accurate figures of that if they're trying to target that particular age group
1: who knows when? They're, maybe they're going to run all this up the flagpole and then when neither gets axed we go hooray well done Tony Hall
3: yeah and then yeah. they just maybe they will ax them both and just replace them with a test card of pictures of salami sliced. Sliced. <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. but
1: how do you ax anything in the age of you know everyone remembers six music so you know it's, it's not going to be easy to, to do either
2: and there's already the Safe uc Three campaign started this week pretty much as soon as there was the rumour that they might cut it you know, a lot of BBC talent joining in. A lot of I saw huge numbers of people on Twitter. There will be cam- a campaign to say whichever channel gets room to, be, to, to stop. And I can imagine the kind of lily-livered BBC types going, "Oh, we've, we can't, we can't annoy these people. We've got, got to change our minds so, plus, yeah. its
1: ratings go through the roof. Yeah. Yes, yeah, do, they, do
3: they stay through the roof? Six Music is still much higher than it was before. Isn't it It is
1: got best part of two million now. Yeah, two million listeners. Hey. But some people think it's not the beast it was. It's all gone horribly mainstream. But is that oh, a that's not fair?
2: Oh, <laughs> have you listen to it. Have you listen to it. They played great, honestly. Why
1: yeah. don't we come back to this? another week okay. right <laughs> next up uh it's time to talk breakfast i'll have the kippers yeah, breakfast you, of choice
3: you had a Kit Kat today john not a kipper all right that's not going to set you up for the day is it
1: all right i did have a Kit Kat. yeah but oh, yeah. you know t- times times are tough but uh, boy, uh you're a but I had man. a
2: yogurt granola a uh, fruity thing this morning
1: did you yeah helen
3: i had a carrot this morning it was a sad day a in carrot, my house. A carrot? <laughs> wow. i've got that's nothing in well, it was accidental. Did you peel it? An no, I couldn't, bothered, I couldn't be bothered to peel it, John.
1: it's hey, like a scene out of a...
3: Boyd's the best one of us. He's yeah. had the best breakfast. Right,
1: well, moving swiftly on, yes. Of course, we're talking breakfast TV. It's so the Media Talk podcast. We're going to say, come on, right. And our ITV had an early morning disaster ever since it replaced GMTV with Daybreak. You remember Adrian Charles and Christine Bleakley were on it. They came and went, and Aled Jones and Lorraine Kelly haven't done much better. So it's out with Daybreak, and in with uh, Good Morning Britain which will always be an Aztec camera song to me, presented by <laughs> Susanna Reid, who's the star of BBC's Breakfast, of course. Uh, it's also going to feature a chap you might remember from GMTV. Uh, I, I don't, frankly. Ben Shepard. Anyway, they'll also be joined by Charlotte Hawkins from Sky News, who will no longer be waking the nation with Eamon Holmes, and uh, a chap from Sky Sports called Sean Fletcher. Uh, Helen, Susanna <laughs> Reid, Ben Shepard, Good Morning Britain. A winning combination for ITV?
3: I think it might be a bit hectoring, especially with that name. Isn't that what you would call a morning show if you were writing a kind of totalitarian parody book about Britain, uh, you know, forcing people out of their beds to go and then comb their moustaches or something.
1: And and it should be called, strictly speaking, Good Morning, a very small part of Britain and not as many people who are watching breakfast.
3: Oh, it's a bit unfair, isn't it? Just whatever they do, everyone's expecting to fail. Yes. I would assume that they would make the set rather more uh, uh, lively and uh, colourful than uh, with Daybreak. A lot of people criticise that looking at that sorry, drab wall of sadness uh, at that hour of the morning (laughs) wasn't really making them that motivated for the day.
1: And that was just Adrian Charles' face. Uh, <laughs> oh. But boy should, should they just give it up and do something completely different or yes. stick on reruns of uh, you know it up.
2: I mean the problem is that for Good Morning Britain was the name of D- TVAM's um, it was uh, kind of the slogan wasn't it, it was yeah the that's slogan. right it was actually yeah. the name of it was very confusing because TVAM was the franchise but they called the show the first part of the show was Good Morning Britain and B ITV's got to realise the problem is they can put whoever they want there. They could put Brad Pitt there hosting in the morning. People are still going to watch BBC Breakfast News. It's kind of the same reason that watch, people watch news at 10 on the BBC. Why? Because they trust it that it's a reliable, fairly easy news source in the morning. Who's watching Breakfast TV for a big personality? You don't watch I, mean, I don't watch it anyway. I listen to the radio. But I listen to the radio because I want a kind of fairly reliable. Easily digestible version of what's going on in the world, and that you're getting that from BBC News. Why bother? I mean, I I like the idea that ITV does bother, but equally, they could show you know repeats of phrases Channel 4 does these days and still probably get the same number of people watching it. It's not to do with the personalities. It's not Susanna Ree is not going to make any difference to BBC's ratings or ITV's ratings, I guarantee it.
3: Do you think that if they made The Big Breakfast Now or a show like that, it would work because Um, there's nothing else like that? If they called it Rise. I,
2: oh. I, I I slightly doubt it. I think the Big Breakfast was a hit when it launched because it was right for that time. But now you've got dozens got internet. of internet, dozens of people, dozens of channels giving you whatever the hell you want in the morning. And BBC is the one that's giving you its version of the news with you know random celebrity guests, etc. And why? Why if you want TV, you go to BBC One.
3: As long as Lorraine's all right, though. As long as Lorraine still yeah. got a morning job. Yeah. Well,
2: Lorraine's bit with her celebrity gossip and stuff serves another function afterwards. But, but get plunking her on. Plunking her on, even plunking, plunking—that's plunking. good for Plunketing podcast. Plunketing her on didn't work because it's—it's it's not about the presenters. It's about the fact that that bit, that newsy bit, you go to BBC One for it.
1: Okay, well, good luck, ITV. It sounds <laughs> sounds like you're going to need it. Uh, but before we leave the Gogglebox, sounds like a good title for a show, uh, let's talk BBC drama. BBC One controller Charlotte Moore and the Beeb's drama boss Ben Stevenson unveiled what they called the next generation of BBC One drama at a swanky bash attended by the world's finest media and TV journals. Were you there, Boyd? You know I was there, Plumco You were there. Are you pretending oh, you weren't there? Good of you to say so. <laughs> uh, and it turns out, uh, what is the answer to the, uh, to the next generation of BBC One drama? It's Agatha Christie. <laughs>
3: Oh, fancy that.
1: David Williams will star in a new Tommy and Tuppence adaptation. What do you mean you never heard of Tommy and Tuppence? And there'll be a new take on And Then There Were None. Uh, and that's not a reference to BBC Three's Overnight Figures. Oh. Oh. Thank you. Now, um, Boyd, <laughs> yeah. Boy, were you inspired by the prospect of a whole bunch of Agatha Christie stuff on <laughs> BBC One? Do you know what? I love Agatha Christie. So I was.
2: I know you want me to say, oh, you know. No, the tone doing, of my voice wasn't suggesting They should that. be doing modern contemporary. Of course. I've still what, got Helen what, you're, to turn to. You're being, you're being <laughs> yeah. slightly disingenuous. You know, as if you ever would be, because they did announce a whole raft of new sparkling contemporary dramas as well. It's only and a no short podcast. I know too. Agatha Christie is an absolute genius. Honestly, I'm a huge fan of crime fiction, and she is the master of crime fiction. She's a brilliant, brilliant writer. The Tommy and Tuppets are only a handful of those books. I read them when I was about thirteen, and I remember loving them. But so I think, great, why not? Yeah, the BBC should. Be. If the BBC is the one is the, is is the place where you're going to go to for revivals of Shakespeare and this, that, and the other, please do, go, on, go for Agatha Christie. And then, and then There Were None is one of the greatest novels oh, ever. Yeah. Absolute masterpiece. So they should be doing that stuff as long as they carry on doing contemporary, relevant, stuff as well and they will they are
3: there are a lot of great adaptations of and then there were none yes. slash it's earlier racist titles yes. already so it'd be interesting about eight I think mm. But so given do, that
1: should they bother doing another one or are they bringing it for a younger contemporary audience I reckon
3: they are because Tommy and Toppence they did I think in the 80s and it was ITV did it yeah, yeah and it's one of those things that watching it now it's, it's absolutely excruciating <laughs> but you do feel that a bit like ITV did all of Poirot They've covered Marple. They can't be bothered to do Tommy and Tuppence, so uh, the BBC's picking up the leftovers. But there are a lot of uh, Christie books as well that don't have any common detectives in. Like, and then there were none. Mm. They're just mystery, like standalone mysteries, and I wonder whether the people do more of them because those those don't get as much traction.
1: Uh, and yeah, but give us a, give us a sense of the other dramas. There was uh, something called Interceptor and uh, Eden, and it was a Sheridan
3: uh, Smith vehicle.
1: Yeah, and uh, yes, yes, and Doctor Foster, which I think uh, about the the GP who thinks her husband's having an affair.
2: Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's but, a thing called Happy Valley, which I was supposed to go to on set on Monday and can't make it because I'm too busy, which is um, which is Sally Wainwright's new, it's a kind of druggy crime drama, it's an edgy thing, you know, Sally Wainwright wrote The Brilliant Last Tango in Halifax, I thought the the slate, as we call it, in the business, sounded pretty good, and just the fact that, you know, I think they're really aware of the fact they've got a rise to the challenge of channels like HBO and Showtime in America and... Um, and Channel Four here, who are doing a lot of good drama at the moment, so and I the think-
3: original Netflix stuff as well. Yeah, that's exactly. changed a
2: lot. Yeah,
1: well, here we go. Yeah, because I think um, w- one of the journos there asked Ben Stevenson about this. He sort of suggested they should be thinking about doing like a Broadchurch-style, the yeah. killing sort of thing. And it got a bit on Ben Stevenson's goat, and he said, "Well, you know, I don't tell my uh, writers and commissioners to go and do the next example Broadchurch, you know, because he said that's very anti-creative." But but is there a point there? Is BBC One? It- Shouldn't it be doing that sort of, I'm not saying it should replicate a 24-part piece about a single killing, but isn't there a, a, <laughs> a, a case to answer that it hasn't really come up with a, a hasn't generated the sort of house of cards, killing, broadshirts kind of chatter, you know, that those shows have?
2: I think there is a case to answer, yeah. I know what Ben means. I'm, I'm kind of with him in terms of, he says he's, he's very staunch in the fact that, you know, we don't go out and say, produce a 23-part thing about anything. If, if someone came to him and say, let's do a 10, 12, 13-part show, and I think they have got a 10-part thing coming up, He'll say, Well, think about it. I would like the BBC to try and do something as bold and big and ambitious as those HBO things, you know, as a Breaking, breaking Bad was not HBO. Um, but something like that, that feels like, you know, you, you read the kind of the, the blurb for it and you think, oh, this is different, this is bold, this is really bold. Only
3: the BBC really can do new. it as well. Yeah,
2: I, I, I do feel they, need, they should try and rise to that challenge. And I, felt, I feel slightly that they're kind of carrying on doing things the way they do them. I don't think they can go down the American model because it's a completely different financial kind of monetary system. It's, just, it's a completely different world. But I still think I'd like them to rise to the challenge to do something slightly bigger and bolder.
3: Well, they can't really win, though, can they? Because they either get accused of not being original enough or of not being generalist enough.
2: That's right. That's yeah, absolutely. isn't it? Yeah, they can't win, that's true.
1: OK, well, much more to come after this. It's now been six weeks since TalkSport turned off Twitter. The UTV station stopped tweeting in protest at the abuse suffered by Stan Collymore and other presenters, and what it said was the failure of the social media site to do something about it. It's still not back on Twitter. This for a station previously responsible for around 3 million tweets and retweets a month. But will it go back, and when? When I spoke to Scott Taunton, Chief Executive of TalkSport and UTV Media GB, in one of the station's studios earlier, this is what he had to
4: say. When you look at the detail of some of the tweets that are being received by some of our presenters, I can't imagine that someone wouldn't want to take some action in order to protect those individuals, you know, or to do something to make their working environment safer.
1: A lot of the focus was on Stan Collymore, but give us a sense of, uh, you know, some of the, some of the abuse that your presenters were subjected to before you took that decision.
4: I mean, Stan's obviously the more high profile of the of the individuals in the sense that Stan took it on himself to actually have this debate in a very public way. But there are three other presenters here who don't want to be named, who've received death threats, and at least one of those has received threats, you know, amounting to you know, threats to rape his wife and uh, on the lives of his children and individuals suggesting that they're actually following some of our presenters around and, and intend to cause them harm. And real issues that you just want to be able to protect people from having to read regularly. And and I think in a couple of those instances, there's real frustration because they know who the individuals are in an online sense, and yet Twitter haven't been able to quickly react to closing the accounts down or to removing those tweets. And our biggest issue and concern is not so much the harm and offence element. It's a very simple position that we're taking, and that is that in those cases... It is illegal in in this country to make, you know, threats on someone's life, to racially abuse any individual. And just on the basis of law, we think that Twitter should be acting quickly. And you've written to Culture Minister Ev Vasey telling him that
1: you're not satisfied with the kind of internal practices that Twitter have got in place. Uh, You say that they're not in position to, to turn stuff around quickly enough and they're not able to deal with this abuse. And you're not satisfied that they're going to be
4: able to deal with it in the future if it happens again. They would say that they do. Um, And they would say that they have enhanced the size of their team and that they do respond in a reasonable time period, both in terms of removing offensive posts and in dealing with police. But the problem is that when you then ask Twitter to quantify what they mean by that, so what are the timescales in which they would like to be responding? even in such a way that you're not holding them to anything. You know, if you said to them, for instance, is it reasonable that you would respond to the police within seven days if there was a... They won't answer that question. And, in fact, Twitter have told us that they won't answer that question if asked by anyone, including the the British government, which I, which I find remarkable.
1: You're hampering yourself by taking the station off Twitter. It's one way you can reach... A very effective way of reaching audiences, as newspapers and radio stations and everyone else knows very well. So, presumably, taking this stand is costing you money.
4: Yeah, it's definitely costing us money and it's costing us profile. You know, certainly in the world of football, we break a lot of stories on the station. We have been very good at using Twitter as a tool to let our audiences know, even when they're not listening to the station, that we have broken stories, pointing them to our website or pointing them to the to the station itself. And also we use it as a sales tool as well. So we will often put together sales proposals that allow brands to actually connect with the three million odd people who follow us on Twitter. And I think Twitter is very good at doing those things, but you'd have to ask yourself why Twitter, in wanting to be a responsible advertising platform, would want to have this sort of illegal and hate messaging sitting alongside advertising that takes place at the same time. So what is it
1: you want Twitter to do before you say, OK, we're satisfied now, we're, we're going to come back, talk
4: sports back on Twitter? We have asked that Twitter put in place processes in a timely fashion that allow us to remove illegal tweets and to close the accounts of those who have been involved in that. And we've also asked them to respond to the police within a reasonable period of time. And as I alluded to earlier, you know, we've said to them, for instance, would you be prepared to say that you would remove an offensive or an illegal tweet within 24 hours and you would deal with the police within, say, seven days. And at this point, Twitter aren't prepared to do that. And I, I just find that remarkable. And you're a big station. You've got 3 million listeners, but they've got a, a
1: market cap of $20 million, which is even bigger than UTV. 20 billion, yeah. 20 billion. Uh, how
4: much does it feel like a, a, a David and Goliath thing? Uh, it doesn't really feel like a David and Goliath thing. I, mean, I think, yes, they're a very big organisation in terms of market cap and in terms of exposure and so on. But actually, I think... When you get under the skin of Twitter, I don't think it's a particularly large organisation outside of the, the media and the sales element of it. So we've been able to deal with, you know, the, the, the chief executive here in the UK, for instance. And to be fair to them, they have responded to our requests very quickly. I just think their hands are tied in terms of being able to get the, the policy changes in this country that they need because of Twitter's U.S heritage and the way they operate there so uh, look to some extent yes we're a very small business but we're not taking them on in that sense i think we're just trying to find a way as a good employer to create a working environment for our staff that is safe
1: okay scott taunton thank you very much so boyd how do you solve a problem like abuse on twitter it's it's not gonna it's not easy and certainly not easy even though Talksport is quite a big station to, to do anything about it
2: I think it's really hard. I, I, you know, In the middle of the interview, I thought it was very interesting when he said, um, I can't believe Twitter wants that level of illegal abuse alongside its avatars or something. Said, of course they don't want it. I, I just think it's a bit, whenever I hear stuff like that, I slightly think, do you actually mean what you're saying? You know, Do you actually expect Twitter to agree to your demand of how long it takes them to resolve this stuff? Obviously, the, the, clearly he knows. The problem is it is a massive, massive Network or platform, essentially, for billions of people they can 't just say yes, we will definitely get rid of this stuff within the time period you tell us you want because they know they can 't live up to that promise he 's expecting stuff that that cannot happen. I remember monitoring the whole Stan Collinwood situation, looking at it because you know I followed him and i 'm interested in football, and I, you know i 'm interested in all of that whole thing. And I thought he was dealing with it very well, and he came out and talked about it a lot on the radio. And he seemed to, he seemed to be dealing with it very well, and he seemed to be saying, you know, it takes time to... They, they were investigating people who were abusing him. So anyway, I just think to blame Twitter for all of this morass of abuse that's out there, millions and millions, hundreds of millions of people engaging in this way, to blame them for what happens is a bit much, and to expect them to meet your demands about how it's done. And I think taking themselves off Twitter has been pointless really i just don't think i don't think anyone really cares in the end so i don't think it's working for TalkSport.
3: also um twitter and all platforms like it they consider themselves not not to be responsible for the uh, content put up on there because well it's it's impossible really like if everyone was going to sue twitter for this kind of thing i do think people need to be more self-governing on the internet we've had it for a while now people need to think would i say this to someone's face and instead they're acting like monsters but I don't think Twitter are going to do anything about this particular case. I think it would take something in America with someone like Oprah Winfrey mounting a campaign saying, look what's happening, for them to put a huge amount of force into this sort of thing. But I don't think TalkSport's the right organisation to make it happen.
1: OK, right now, for some for, time for some news in brief, I think. Uh, and the world's most predictable investigation came to pass this week when the advertising watchdog, the ASA, said it was going to look at Paddy Power's campaign featuring Oscar Pistorius, which uh, promises to offer uh, gamblers money back if he walks uh, from his murder trial, which is um, happening right now. Paddy Power makes uh, a habit of controversial campaigns like this, uh, which get written about and talked about on uh, podcasts exactly like this one. Uh, but, boy, is, is the best punishment just to, just to ignore it and maybe it'll go away? Or, or, or do we have to take these things seriously?
2: Um, I think it's an interesting case I have to be transparent Paddy Power is is the sponsor of my uh, football my Arsenal podcast I see yeah I should come clean so it's a difficult one Uh, I have to to mention that but all I would say is I mean I think obviously it feels like a ridiculous thing for them to do and is part of as you say of their kind of have a history of doing this kind of thing I do think though it's all part of I think you have to take that that thing that they did with that bet, uh, making a bets about this, this horrendous case. The wider issue for me is that the whole case is being reported as a kind of showbiz event. I mean, as all these things are, you know, go back to O.J. Simpson, you listen to the reports on the radio about it and from from the Journal of South Africa, South Africa, and they're dealing with it like it's showbiz, you know. So I think that once you get that kind of flavour of coverage about this kind of thing, it's almost like inevitable that something like this is going to happen with Paddy Power, and you have to kind of stand back from it. Hold on, let's all remind ourselves we're dealing with the murder of a woman, a woman here. So I, I think you know, it's, it's the whole thing feels wrong to me.
3: And I think uh, it's not that surprising, really, that um, betting shops are taking bets on things like this. What was surprising is that they did this advert with Pistorius's head on the body of an Oscar statuette, which makes it seem very frivolous and fun. Mm. The hidden side of the betting, which is that people can bet on nearly any kind of unsavory thing, not surprising, but that, and, and the fact they're not backing down at this outrage. I don't really believe in people making public apologies that they don't actually care about at all. But in this case, you just think, well, shut up, rather than going, no, we're going to intensify this and make it even worse.
1: Right, well, next up, it's time to talk print. Uh, and The Sun challenged the uh, growing anti-Page 3 campaign this week by linking the use of its topless models to a breast cancer awareness charity. It joined forces with uh, something called Copperfeel to encourage women to check their breasts on a regular basis. A good thing, no doubt, but tying it so closely to Page 3 didn't meet the approval of everyone. And probably entirely predictably, the No More Page 3 campaign said it was a real shame that The Sun decided to use these sexualized images of young women to highlight breast cancer. Uh, Helen, was it sort of the the right end but the wrong means, or what did you make of this?
3: I thought they are targeting men with Page 3 girls. Women don't like Page 3 particularly, and therefore, who's this campaign really for? You know, it's not a sexy disease. It is very serious and it does need publicity, but this just isn't going to the right audience.
1: And did you feel it was slightly strange? They're sort of using it as a sort of, you know, a rebuttal, maybe one for you, you know, to sort of say, oh, well, hang on, we can use page yeah. three for good reasons too, of but course. is it a little bit trite oh, sorry, uh, using course, a very serious it is trite, yeah. issue? Using it as a fig leaf
2: to kind of cover up the, the contra- controversy over page three and trying to turn around the page three controversy and make it a force for good somehow. But as Helen says, if you really, if the some the someone wants to back breast cancer awareness and, 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 and checking your breasts and all of that, include men in it because men get breast cancer as well, um, don't have, you know, pictures of page three models, just just back the campaign. Just the Sun would have got a huge amount of goodwill if they'd just come out. Right, we're doing a massive campaign for breast cancer awareness, and just forget about the page three aspect of it. You didn't need, to, you know. So they can't have it both ways. They can't be annoyed that people are saying you're you're using this as a way of you know of defending page three. They didn't need to use the page three. They could have had a really good campaign about breast cancer awareness with a charity involved.
3: Yeah, they could have got a celebrity who has had yeah cancer or a scare Absolutely, and yeah. uh, fronted it that way if they wanted a pretty woman on the cover talking about breast cancer that might have been a little bit more tasteful
1: right well moving on it's time now to talk quotas and in particular uh, quotas on TV panel shows uh, this pod does not have a quota of any sort
3: I feel very tokenistically booked for this show
1: <laughs> we were scrabbling around for a woman and uh, no <laughs> we just get we just get the best people we want on the yes. show and um, fortunately yeah. sometimes they're available and this week they were <laughs> so thank you both for coming <laughs> Back on topic, Uh, this was, of course, BBC Director of TV, Danny Cohen, who said that all male panel games were out of order and would never happen again on the BBC. Now, it's a sentiment we can probably all agree with, but it also sparked fears that such a public declaration would lead to women who appear on these shows, as Helen has just exemplified, as being perceived as the token woman. Academic and TV presenter Mary Beard addressed the issue this week, saying it was easy enough to agree with Cohen, but less easy to see what the BBC, or any media company for that matter, could do in practice. And this is what she had to say. I dread any idea of a fixed quota of women per programme. It's likely to leave desperate producers ringing around all the women they can possibly think of to fill the woman's slot. And I don't think it would be much fun being the woman vilified in all the reviews as the one taking the quota place. Uh, Helen, well, this is a problem, isn't it? As soon as, as soon as there's one woman on one of these TV shows, everyone goes, all right, she is the woman. Yeah. But, you know, they would have got her anyway, whether there's a quota or not, presumably. Well... Or maybe they wouldn't, but you know, but we don't know that, do we? And so there's a danger that we make the inference that she's just making out the numbers, yeah. which is absurd.
3: Well also, imagine if 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 there's an all male panel, you don't even think about it. If there was an all female one, that would be newsworthy. But I think the quota is the wrong way to go about it. Yes, issue an internal memo saying we need to book more women for these things but by making it public it does just seem like yeah we're throwing in these women because you know we're trying to do something good but it still seems like such a male dominated way to go about it and also they're not booking the same types of people i've worked on panel shows where you know it'd be male comedians ones with with, without even that much profile or not even that good looking but the women will be singers or tv presenters or actors who are. Not particularly funny, but they are decorative. And you just think, you know, widen your remit as well At the women you're booking. Get mm. women who can talk as you would get men who can talk. It's just, it's going to take them a few years to actually just think, let's book people who are good. And that is going to be equal in the genders.
1: Well, this is the point, I think, Boyd, isn't it? Yeah, that Danny Cohen's got it right by having this intention, but he's got it wrong by publicly announcing it. It's yeah, a bit like that was if Dar
2: O'Brien's point that he made, and he got roundly, uh, roundly abused and misunderstood. His, his, it's his... a subtle point, which don't always work on Twitter. <laughs> exactly, yeah. I kind of agree with that. I also think it's, it's, it should, what he really they should be doing is having a 50-50. Yeah. <laughs> quote. I mean, really, let's face it, you know, women are more than half the population of the world. That's the bigger thing. And I do think, so I, wrote, I read an interesting, I think it was in The Guardian, I can't remember who wrote the column, um, one, of, one of The Guardian's great uh, feminist columnists said, you know, there should be all-female panel shows and if there are more of them, you know, let's start with that. Let's start having, you know, a panel show where the majority or all of them are women, and then that might ram home the fact that that is extraordinary because there aren't any. And yet, you watch. Still, I watched QI last week, and it was all men. And one of the men on QI last week, extraordinary, was some Australian guy who I'd never heard of in my life, who turned out to be someone who Alan Davis had stayed with when he was on tour in Australia. Oh, fancy and that I fancy. thought, if you're having that person on, if you're having that person on QI, and I love QI, it's one of my favourite shows. Please, God, have two women. on on it with your two men. It's not difficult. I can have any woman who's got a brain who can talk on it and yet they still manage week in, week out to have mostly, if not all men. It is unbelievable in this day and age.
3: I think that a lot of bookers just don't trust women to be able to do it. But talking is actually fairly easy. So they should give (laughs) women a go.
1: Helen, have you been on a BBC panel show and should I know if you have been?
3: I've been on a radio one. Does that on. count? yeah, yeah, How, of course it does. Radio, yes, right. was, certainly does. I was, yes, I was on uh, Charlie Brooker's "So Wrong It's Right." Oh, I was the only woman, but there are only three guests on it, so it's you know you can't have gender equality there unless uh, somebody is. Prepared to have some ambitious hormone and uh, yeah, <laughs> surgical some, intervention.
1: Something like the first episode of the Killing uh, of the Bridge, I should say. Yeah, but that would be. Oh,
3: really? Is that what happens? Mm-hmm. We'll cuts one in half. Yeah. Oh, spoiler! Uh, I haven't seen it yet. Oh, it's too big. It's the on. first episode. It's the premise. It's okay, not much Okay, okay. I was on. I was be on a panel fair. show based on the Bridge. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> and finally, time now for the Media Monkey quiz. Who turned Alan Partridge for an Oscars report on Radio Four this week? Colin Patterson. Colin Patton, and let's hear a clip. My good friend. I'm at the red carpet at the Vanity Fair party at the moment, and Bono is walking past. Bono, Bono, you're
5: live in the Today programme. Bono! I know you don't get this this that often, No, carry on, Today Colin. Program, no, th- go, go on, go for Bono, it. Bono! Bono, you're live in the Today programme. Come over and speak to John
0: Humphreys. No, you're like not speaking on, to John. <laughs> <laughs> That's Jim Nocte, sorry. Bono! <laughs> oh,
1: so, Radio Gold there. I uh, love Colin.
2: He's brilliant. He's fearless. I mean, that job, can I just say, standing at a party, standing outside the Vanity Fair party at the Oscars, trying to interview A list stars, I mean, miserable. He does it so well. He does, he's so enthusiastic. He so, that moment of Radio Gold was the product of a man who's fearless in terms of doing that job.
0: And
3: also, presumably, he'd been working for hours and hours at that point. If he was on yeah. the Today oh, programme, yeah. it must have been, what, midnight or after midnight, then yeah. the Oscars start mid afternoon.
1: Yeah, he did
2: a live show about
3: 8.30 the night before Oof. on Five
2: Live for the Oscars. He must have been up the whole about 24 hours. Yeah.
1: Question number two. Which TV show has just done a merchandising deal with Chelsea Football Club? The Simpsons.
3: Why? Exactly, yeah. Is it because they're in America and they think, well, this is relatively meaningless, let's take the money?
2: I am furious as an Arsenal fan that The Simpsons, one of the best shows of all time, has, has, has done a link, any kind of link-up with the hideous people at Chelsea, yeah. Which shows think.
1: are left that you guys could do a deal with? You know, who'd, who'd be family Guy. we do
2: Family Guy. that yeah, uh, yeah, Get so- Arsene Wenger
1: starring in Family Guy. Because he is a family guy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right, OK. And I don't know if he is. And question number three. He is. Who said they were bigger than the Pope on Google?
3: Jesus Christ! No, no, it's Piers Morgan, isn't it? Oh, it's Piers Morgan, yes. yeah, because uh, he needs the uh, the public <laughs> ego inflation, doesn't he?
1: Yep. This is the soon-to-be former CNN talk show host. said so the Pope currently has 441 million Google hits, uh, but I've got 484 million. To which someone replied on Twitter: "Yep, yeah, but at least he's got a job." Hey, boom. And uh, so I think media. I think it's two points to uh, Boyd and um, one. To Helen.
3: Just happy to be here.
1: (laughs) Great to have you, Helen. My thanks, of course, to Helen Zaltzman and Boyd Hilton. Thank you. The token man. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm joined for this part of the show by The Guardian's TV reviewer, Sam Williston. Sam, how are you?
5: I'm all right, thank you.
1: It would be remiss, uh, before we talk about anything else, uh, not to get your thoughts on uh, BBC Three, which, uh, well, it's facing the axe, it might not go, it might go online, who knows, maybe it will stay the same. Your thoughts, some of your your favourite comedies have been on BBC Three.
5: Yeah, I mean, you've probably talked about um, Gavin and Stacey and um, Bad Education and things, but actually
1: some of my favourite shows have
5: been Ninety-Nine Night, Julia Davis's show, which I think was really kind of um, out there and of its time. Him and her pulling. Now these have all been great shows that would never have appeared on BBC One or BBC Two, and I think it would be a real shame if they, there wasn't a platform for slightly shocking, out there shows like that, which have been fantastic.
1: Okay, well let's look elsewhere now. Um, and what, what's on your uh, what's on your uh, set top box uh, this week, Sam? So?
5: Set top box, well, as, as in my hard disk.
1: <laughs> as in your hard disk, as in your EPG. Am I? am thinking about this too much. Aren't I? What, what are you watching?
5: <laughs> this week, thirty seven, thirty seven days is very good. There's a, obviously there's a lot of First World War stuff coming up, and already has been. There's been the excellent uh, Paxman documentary. There's been a couple of. Uh, there's been the the Niall Ferguson program. This is a drama. It's about the outset of the First World War. Obviously, it's incredibly complicated. I mean, if I asked you, how did the First World War started? Could you tell me?
1: It's a short podcast, Sam.
5: <laughs> <laughs> the, the, way they've, 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 the way they've boiled it down is they've looked at the period of time between the uh, assassination of Archduke Ferdinand and the First World War and what's happening in the cabinet room. So it's a sort of political drama set in Germany, set in the Foreign Office here. Obviously, you know what's going to happen because you know war's going to break out at the end of it, but because the the, the implications of all these decisions are so momentous, it kind of gives it an an extra poignancy uh, it's very well done it's very well there's a couple of things I don't like about it there's a kind of um, first person narration two first person narrations from an English point of view and a German point of view slightly muddled things up otherwise it's it's very involving it's very well done and it's thrilling it's definitely well seen that's Thursday night on BBC 2
1: and it sounds kind of when we talk about BBC and BBC drama it's kind of, it sounds kind of quintessentially kind of BBC and the sort of thing you're not going to get you know good as Netflix is and the commercial broadcasters you know you're not going to see it anywhere else
5: you probably wouldn't see that on BBC 3 either Okay, next up. End of uh, Outnumbered, I suppose, is interesting. For me, it's...
1: And it really is the end. This is the last ever series. Yeah.
5: Wednesday is the last ever episode of Outnumbered. Couldn't come soon enough for me. I can't stand that show. A of people love it. I think the sort of people who love it who look at it and go, oh, look, our kids are just like that. Aren't they funny? Uh, whereas I look at it and think these uh, kids are absolutely monsters. Um, <laughs> I can't stand them. A horrible, smart-ass can I say smart us oh yes, uh middle class uh children, and it is symptomatic of you see it look, looking around uh, everywhere you see children kind of taking over their families and their poor parents becoming sort of basically sort of pets and chauffeurs to them P- possibly that's part why people like it they they think yes. they recognize it as themselves, but I, for that it's means, not a comedy, it's a documentary, I yeah, I think it's a documentary, yeah, it's not funny
1: uh okay well, fair, farewell, uh, outnumbered
5: yeah, farewell, farewell, uh. and good riddance to outnumbered.
1: And finally, this week uh, we got the return of uh, Channel Four, uh, big Channel Four uh, hit, which was um, Gogglebox. Yeah, uh, returns in a new the slot
5: on, um, on Fridays now, uh, a new, more prominent slot. Um, yeah, Nine PM, right? Yeah, right of it, in the half uh, peak. Immense success last time round. I mean, who'd have thought it? Watching people watching TV is actually um, incredibly entertaining, but it is. I don't quite buy the this is a picture of Britain thing because I think they've been very carefully chosen, those people. Some of them have actually appeared on other things as well. But it is a a very, very clever format. Um, and the person who's laughing all the way to the bank is Stephen Lambert, whose idea it was, who makes it. Um, most famous for, for re-editing the Queen in a, in a way that lost him his job.
1: Well, he did do that, yes. Uh, and he also did, uh, what was he, Faking It and Wife Swap and all those kinds of shows. All, all those show, yeah.
5: And uh, I, th- I think the Gogglebox formula has been sold all over the world, so he must be um, losing his job from uh, the, the Queen. edit has done him no harm at all. He's doing very well,
1: I think. See, I'm concerned. Well, no, I'm not. That doesn't keep me awake at night. But uh, the show like Gogglebox, when it's sort of, uh, you know, midweek and a bit of a sleeper hit, everyone thinks, oh, yeah, great. This is good stuff. But when you stick it on Friday night at 9 o'clock when there's lots of other stuff on and you've had a hard week at work, uh, and you, you maybe that's the kind of show you feel slightly sad watching and think, oh, my God, I must better do better than this. You know, it's... Uh, it's um When it's the underdog, it's got a certain appeal about it. But when it's right there and it's like the main entertaining... can happen,
5: can't it? Shows can get a a slot that's too good for them. Wither in the glare. Yeah, wither in the glare. I sort of think Gogglebox, I think because it did so well and it is actually incredibly entertaining, I think it will survive that slot. I think it's big enough for the slot.
1: Well, we shall report on the overnight audience next week. But for now, Sam Williston, thank you very much. Thank you. And that's it for this week. My thanks to all our guests, who are Helen Zaltzman, Boyd Hilton, Sam Williston, and, of course, to Scott Taunton. You can leave your thoughts on this week's show on our blog, or you can tweet me at John Plunkett 149 Media Talk is produced by Mr Matt Hill. Thanks for listening.
0: For more great downloads, go to the slash audio Support for this Guardian podcast comes from Squarespace, providing creative tools that help you bring your ideas to life. Squarespace offers free domain names, customizable designs, drag and drop tools, and 24/7 support. Squarespace also offers seamless e-commerce solutions for you or your small business. Every design automatically includes a unique mobile experience that matches the overall style of your website. So you your content will look brilliant on any device. Start your free trial today. No credit card required. As a Guardian podcast listener, you'll get 10% off your new account by using the offer code: GUARDIAN.